You may be seated. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. So great to see so many people back from their bouts of seasonal sickness that we had last week. Our first little dusting of frost and snow. Deep thanks, of course, to Brady and to Diana for leading us in worship this morning. We sing loudly and we sing with joy. We sing and while we do sing humbly, needing grace for today, we also sing boldly. We sing boldly. We may come boldly before the throne of grace, Scripture tells us. We may shout Hosanna in the highest. Through Christ's death and resurrection, the veil between us and the Father has been torn in two. We have access to the throne room of grace, and we come with joyful and with expectant hearts. And out of that, while we seek to pour out our adoration onto God, There is refreshment in his presence. We come seeking to give in our worship, and yet in his goodness, we walk away having received. That's God's economy in our lives. And we are blessed to be a blessing, are we not? God pours into our lives through his word and through worship and through our fellowship with the brethren that our cup might overflow onto all of those around us that we might open our mouths to speak to the world around us. Perhaps sometimes, though, we're not partaking of God's means of grace in our lives as we should. That reading of the word, the preaching of the word, the worship, the fellowship, so that our own cups are often half full or perhaps even dry. We're not giving our we're not giving of ourselves because our own cups are empty. Now, saints, this is largely taught to to pastors in ministry, but it applies to every one of us deeply. Ministry capacity, meaning what you have to give to the world around you. Okay, to every believer, that's every believer here. Saints, that comes from the overflow in your life. Your ministry is sourced from the overflow. If your cup is not full, you don't actually have anything to give. Now, that doesn't mean tired or worn out or even how you feel that day. This is our spiritual cup of joy. It's our lives of obedience that position us to be continually filled. You can be utterly exhausted, but still have a full cup. Our strength is not our own. When we are weak, he is strong. We must perish any ministry that's done in our own strength. It will fail. You won't have that desire to reach out to that coworker one more time or to visit that neighbor again. We open the news instead of our Bible. There lies a dry land. It's parched with no life because our flesh and our body will fail us. Yet I've seen those on their deathbed that have overflowing cups. We minister out of that overflow. And we must grasp this, saints, because we often think that sometimes our Our slackness and our spiritual disciplines, not partaking of the means of grace that's given to sustain us and to grow us in our lives, that that only hurts ourselves. But that's certainly not the case. If we're not full, then we're not overflowing. And if we're not overflowing, then we're not reaching our communities. Everyone around us in our lives, we all have people that are dependent on our cup running over. You know that 
You may be the means of grace that God is using in a person's life. And in fact, if you are a believer, I can guarantee that you are. I can guarantee that you are. Maybe friends, family members, co-workers, church friends. Someone here is counting on your cup running over. We must remain full so that we can overflow. Saints, God uses people to accomplish his work in the world for better or for worse. And sometimes we are those people. So we ask the Lord to fill our cups to overflowing today, not just for ourselves, but for those that he has put into our life that need his touch, that need a word in season. Sometimes they can change our perspective when we remember that our spiritual walk and our growth is not just about us. God is using our overflow to minister to a healing, to a hurting world. So stay full. Amen? Stay full. Well, last week we stood and we breathed the rare air of the summit of the gospel of Mark. We stood on the mountaintop of Mark's gospel. Everything up until this point has been leading up to that event, this proclamation by Peter, and everything afterwards will flow out of this declaration. It is indeed a mountaintop, and so we greatly enjoyed the view last week. Looking back to where we had come from, all that had happened to the disciples, and now as we leave today, we're heading downhill, and we're going to begin picking up steam as we head toward Jerusalem, as we head towards Calvary. The chess pieces are moving into place, as we said, and the disciples are being prepared. Last week in the pagan and the idolatrous, the perverse city of Caesarea Philippi, the matter of, Jesus, of who Jesus Christ is was settled in the hearts of the disciples. With Peter proclaiming that you are the Christ, the proclamation of the ages, a proclamation that every believer must come to. It is an anchor that is dropped in the soul. And though the storms will whiplash us around in life, that anchor, that mountaintop, that proclamation, it holds. The anchor holds. And out of that proclamation flows a changed life. The disciples were given sight for a reason. They were saved with purpose. You and I were saved for a purpose. We were nothing special that he saved us. The disciples were all quite ordinary men. But the Lord gets the maximum amount of glory when he uses the most unlikely vessels. We were not saved because we had something special to offer. In fact, just the opposite. We were born as haters of God, Scripture says. That we were hostile in our mind towards the things of God when he overwhelmed us with an irresistible grace and he gave us sight. Jesus posed the question last week, who do people say that I am? And more importantly, who do By his grace, we can answer. We can proclaim with Peter that you are the Christ. And that proclamation is all of God. Matthew records Jesus' response to Peter's declaration, doesn't he? Jesus tells him, you're right. I am the Christ. And you can only see that by God's hand. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly father. You can only see because God has made you to see. No human can possess and come to this knowledge on their own within themselves. Flesh and blood cannot reveal salvific salvation knowledge, meaning the truths that save. Those can only be seen 
by an enabling God. No man comes to me, Jesus said in John 6, unless the Father draws him. God reveals that information. And isn't that freeing? Because saints, if it's not of us, we can't mess it up. If it doesn't begin with us and it doesn't finish with us, it's all of him. And we can rest in that. He who began a good work in you, Philippians 1, 6, who began it? God will be faithful to complete it in you. Who completes it? God. He starts it and he finishes it. Man, is that freeing. Is that ever freeing? As we have been saved and we've been justified, we are immediately put on the road of sanctification. The school of Christ daily being changed into the image of Jesus Christ. Did you know that that's God's will for us? That's his will for you. He's already told us in scripture. People are always fussing about finding God's will for their life. Well, I can ease that burden for you. Scripture has already told us his will for our life. My desire is for you to become more like my son. And with every passing year, as goodness and mercy follow you and pursue you, as the psalmist declares, you are going to be made more like Christ. He's going to complete the work that he's begun in you if you are indeed his. If you missed last week's message, it really is a pivotal one. I would encourage you to go back on Sermon Audio or Facebook and listen if you have time. As we said, with the epic crescendo, with the proclamation of the ages declared last week, we've now turned our gaze down the mountain now. And the ride is going to be a whiplash for the disciples. So it's going to be a whiplash for us. Today we'll begin an epic example of going from mountain high to valley low. From a great proclamation, one that joined with all of heaven's chorus to a smackdown of all severity. Oh, that we might have soft hearts for our scene today. So with that, let's look at our text. Mark 8, 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter openly And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, this is a difficult scene. Lord, this scene requires your Holy Spirit to attend to it with great might and with great wisdom. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us. We ask that the arrow would find its mark, that you would attend to your word. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. I was talking with a a dear congregant some time ago who was really reflecting on how much they were growing in the Lord by leaps and bounds in their faith. And they they were learning so much and their, their eyes were being further open to the depths of Scripture and to all the beauty that was in it. You know, they had a love for it like they'd never had before. All of these things were, were wonderful. It was this, this heartfelt, joyous proclamation by this dear saint. But that same conversation was followed up by a sadness. It was followed up with a worry and a concern. You know, this person had been saved for a number of years, but 
They never knew all the things that they were learning now. They never felt like this. They, they felt like they were missing such big pieces of the puzzle. Were they truly saved all this time? And they began to doubt their moment of salvation because of the new worlds that were opening to them. Surely this is something I would have gotten if I were really saved. How could I be missing such huge pieces of the puzzle? Of course, this person, since their conversion, had been continually growing in the Lord. They they bore fruit in keeping with repentance. Their trajectory is one that you would expect to see in someone that the Lord has saved. But yet there were huge pieces of the puzzle missing. The introduction of new information, of new growth, caused this joy and yet this concern all at the same time. When the Lord first saves us, there are whole worlds that we have not yet seen. We're babes in Christ. And we mustn't take a a glorious explosion of new frontiers in our faith as a point of concern whether or not God has saved us. Every saint is going to get to heaven and is going to put their palm on their forehead saying, wow, did I miss that one? The frontiers are more vast in Christ than we could ever imagine. Oh, my worship and my meager service seem so frail in light of that majesty. It will happen, saints. It will happen. Mark it down. Well, the disciples in our text today are going to need just such counsel. Of course, at least 11 of them are born again at this point. They have witnessed the works of Jesus. The Lord is removing their blinders so they might see, however dimly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. They've made a proclamation of the ages, haven't they? They've declared from their inner heart that you are the Christ. And we don't just know it factually, we know it experientially. You have changed us. We're not who we once were. We know who you are. We know that you're Messiah. We know your divinity. But boy, are they missing a piece of the puzzle. A huge piece. And saints, we don't say this from an ivory tower or from a place of judgment. As we stand here ourselves, we will be blown away someday by what we have missed. We will continue as we grow in Christ and as we grow in the word to be blown away by what was right in front of us. But that can sometimes be a painful process when the new revelation, that new information comes driving right at what you thought you knew, when it comes crashing into your tradition and into your preferences. That's a hard place. That's the place we're about to find our disciples in this morning from mountain high to valley low. Oh, we are one with the master now, right? We proclaim you as the Messiah on the mountaintop. Great. Those are vital ingredients. Great. Those are indispensable ingredients, but you're not yet cooking with Crisco quite yet. In fact, that knowledge you now possess is not only incomplete without the remaining piece of the puzzle, but the genesis of it and the outcome of it Were it to be the whole truth, that comes straight from the pit of hell. Because if I'm the Messiah, you think I am right now, that means I'll never go to the cross. You'll be left in your sins. And that's where our text is driving to. That's our destination today, beloved. So give us soft hearts. Let's dive in, beginning with verse 31. Verse 31. And he began to teach them. Now stop there. We have to pause there because we have a subtle sea change that's critical to catch. 
Mark says here, and he began. Now, it's basically another way of saying from here on out. From here on out. So it's in the present tense, meaning Jesus is going to be banging this drum from here on out. What he's about to say is the message. It is the core of what he is going to be telling them and teaching them from here on out. And he began. And saints, we are less than a year to Calvary. They must get this. And he began to teach them. And what Jesus says here is a system shock to the disciples. We've just declared you the Messiah, right? They just declared his divinity. You affirmed what we said. You said, you're right. I'm the Messiah. God has revealed this to you. Great. But now, instead of talking about your coming kingdom, your earthly political and military conquerings, your throne that you'll occupy on earth as you deliver your people from oppression and restore the glory and the honor of Israel, instead of all that, which is what we've been taught, you're saying you're going to die. And not just die. What does our text say? That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Whoa, man. Back up the moving truck. We need to unpack. What is happening here? Messiah is going to suffer? Not just suffer, but suffer many things. Why is this a shock? If we read the Messianic Psalms, we know Jesus was destined to suffer. If we read the prophets, if we read Isaiah, Zechariah, our suffering servant, we know he was meant to suffer. We know that he would be well acquainted with grief and pain. So why is a suffering Messiah, our suffering servant, so hard to grasp? Because we often follow and listen to our traditions rather than what Scripture actually says. A suffering Messiah would not have been a mystery for any Jew willing to set aside his preconceptions, set aside their traditions, and simply read the text. Read the words. What does it say? The Old Testament does not frame Messiah's earthly mission as one of success and conquering victory. In fact, it shows a suffering servant who will be rejected, who will suffer and who will die. We read Isaiah 53 this morning. Too much time in the synagogue listening to rabbis pontificate about laws and traditions rather than preaching and explaining the text. Jesus teaching needn't have been a shock to their system if they knew their Torah, it's all over the Old Testament. Everything Jesus says about himself and what he will endure. It's all there. It's all there. Back to our text. How does Jesus refer to himself here? The son of man, the son of man, Jesus favorite term for himself, right? Used over 80 times in the Gospels. This title is rooted in Daniel seven. Now, the Pharisees and rabbis never used this term. They never used it. They didn't like this term. Because they felt that it, it denigrated the divinity of Messiah, son of man. Isn't that amazing? The least favorite title for Messiah by the religious elite is Jesus' favorite. They love the divinity of Messiah, the God aspect, but they downplay the humanity, which is to miss the entire work of the atonement. 
Right? If we don't understand that Jesus must be fully God and fully man, we cannot understand the nature of the payment that was made for our sins. Only a human can be a substitute for a human if it is to be an actual and a true substitute. So Jesus must be fully human. But here's the problem, saints. Only God himself can take upon himself the wrath of God and live to tell about it. So Jesus must be both fully God and fully man. Fully man, the son of man. Right? Because only a human can be a substitute for a human. Jesus took our place on the cross and fully God because Jesus was going to need to bear up under the wrath of God as the sin of the world was poured out on him and be raised to tell about it. Fully God, fully man. The fancy name for this is called the hypostatic union. 100% God, 100% man, fully and simultaneously. At no time on earth did Jesus cease to be 100% God and 100% man. Isn't that amazing beyond what our minds can comprehend? Isn't that amazing? Jesus being our substitute. Do we see the beauty of the gospel? Do we see a plan and a story put into action from the foundation of the world that could never be concocted in a thousand lifetimes? The son of man. The son of man what? Don't miss this, saints. Look at the text. He must. The son of man must. There is no other way. This is how it must happen. There is no room for your military political Messiah you're looking for. This is it. It's singular. This is the plan of the ages. From the moment the serpent tempted Eve and God declared that he would put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The suffering, the rejection, the death. None of this is reactionary, saints. You do not serve a reactionary God. He is a planner. He's a planner. When God said, let there be light, the cross was already in view. The son of man must, must. They have much to learn on the road to Jerusalem, don't they? The son of man must suffer many things before he is killed He'll be whipped. He'll be beaten. He'll be mocked. He'll be hit in the face. He'll be spit upon. He will suffer. Now, this makes no sense to Judaic tradition. And Jesus goes on back to the text and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes rejected. The very people who are looking for you. The very people who are spending their time teaching about you, the very ones who taught me about you in synagogue, they're all going to reject you. How can how can we reject you when our entire society is built around looking for you? None of this makes sense and none of it makes sense. Those of those who know the Torah best, those who know the law best, the scribes. Those who have dedicated their lives to the study of this very topic, they are going to reject you. How could that even happen? They knew the written word, but they could not see the living word in their midst, standing right in front of them. And yet the wheels are turning for the disciples at some level, aren't they? Because they've already watched the rejection of Jesus by the religious establishment. Something's not right there. 
But these disciples are grown men that have been taught one thing from birth. One thing. So you're going to suffer. You're not going to conquer. You're going to be rejected, not embraced and accepted and put on a high throne, restoring all of Israel. Is there anything else while you're reigning on our parade? Yeah. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be killed. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. What? Over our dead bodies, you will. Watch what happens. Verse 32. Verse 32. And he was stating the matter openly. Quick pause there. Why say that? Why does Mark say this? Because up to this point, Jesus had been fairly cryptic, hadn't he? Right? The last time that this was mentioned, Jesus responded that no sign would be given to them, would be given to the religious elite, except for the sign of Jonah. Which, of course, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it was cryptic. Right? Jesus meant to conceal matters in these earlier times. But not now. The time for plain speech is upon us. The time is short. Listen to me. They're going to reject me. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise again. Saints, it's almost impossible for us to see this from the disciples' point of view. Because we cannot set aside our hindsight. Death, burial, resurrection. These are common vocabulary words for us as believers. But not so here. Not for these men. These are foreign concepts. And we need to grasp that as we come upon what is one of the most peculiar and most jarring scenes of Scripture. A disciple rebuking Jesus. Last part of verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Well, of course, there's more buried in this than meets the eye, and it is amazing. Talk about the clay calling out the potter. Talk about the creation calling out the creator. This is a most awkward scene, but it tells us so very much. Now, what, first off, what kind of rebuke are we talking about here? Is it a mild rebuke? Hey, Jesus, you probably shouldn't talk like that. It's kind of weird. You're confusing the other guys. Not even close. The English fails us here because rebuking can have so many degrees, can't it? There's a soft rebuke. There's a harsh rebuke. What was this? Epitimao. Epitimao. Okay. Well, where else do we see that word used here? What are we talking about here? Well, there are 30 usages of that in Scripture. You'll be happy to know I won't give you all 30. But let me give you a sampling. See if you can pick up what kind of rebuke Peter was giving Jesus here. Jesus rebuked the winds and the sea. Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, being quiet and come out of him. And he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him. More, and Jesus standing over her rebuked the fever and it left her. Demons also were coming out of many shouting, you are the son of God, but rebuked them. He would not allow them to speak. A couple more, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Finally, how about final one from Jude? And when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, 
he did not pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Oh, what kind of rebuke is this coming from Peter? Soft or hard? Oh, it's beyond hard. This is an authoritative rebuke. It's a rebuke that can only be given by someone in authority in the strongest possible terms. Lord, this will never happen to you. Really? Now, we're not impugning Peter's motives whole hog here. He loved his savior. He didn't want him killed. But, you know, the disciples say that we left everything for you, didn't we? We left everything for you. We left our families, our businesses. We're on the Messiah train here. And you're telling us that you're going to die. We aren't saying that Peter wasn't sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. And he was ignorant of the plans of God. And as such, had unwittingly become a surrogate of Satan. F.F. Bruce writes, quote, None are more formidable instruments of temptation than well-meaning friends who care more for our comfort than for our character. Close quote. We are right back in the wilderness with Satan. If you've not listened to that message, tempted, tested, and triumphant about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, please do. The entire premise is getting Jesus to pick up what was rightfully his. Pick it up. Pick up what is rightfully owed to you as the son of God. Do that and you'll never go to the cross. You'll never go. Be that conquering Messiah. Be that earthly king. Be lifted up here and now. All of this is owed to you, Jesus. Pick that up. Do that. And you'll never go to the cross. But the path of our salvation is not through Christ's exaltation. It would be through his humiliation. Nobody wants Jesus to be horribly humiliated. Peter doesn't want Jesus to be humiliated. Guess what? Neither did Jesus. Because the path of humiliation leads to the cross. No, no, be exalted. You are the Christ, in fact, are you not? Are you not? Far be it that you should walk the road of a suffering servant. You're the son of God. Now go take what's yours. Turn these stones into bread. No Messiah deserves to be hungry. Far be it that you should know hunger or pain. That was the lie of the wilderness. That was Satan's temptation. Can you hear it now in Peter's voice? Can you hear it? Jesus does. Verse 33. Verse 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. We see Jesus turning around to his disciples, seeing his disciples. Why does Mark write this? Because they were all thinking this. Peter was just the spokesman for the group with enough moxie to actually say it. But they were all thinking it. They were all thinking, man, we've left everything for you. And now you're going to leave us. Their priorities were not God's priorities. Their highest good in that moment was not God's plans or God's desires, but it was their own. Not only do we need you here on earth, but now we've built our whole lives around you, Jesus. But, you know, it's kind of embarrassing as well to say, but the disciples here are already kind of talking about who's going to be the general of this army, aren't they? Who's going to be your right hand man? Who's going to serve in the highest offices of this new messianic kingdom? Right. We know that they're talking like this. Read Matthew 20, 20 through 21. 
Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him what for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. We have plans, Jesus, and none of those plans include a suffering servant. None include a crucified Messiah. Now, here's what's remarkable about the hardness of men. Remarkable. Here's what is remarkable about the power of our own priorities when we get something in our heads. Again, in our text, the English is failing us. Jesus is about to level a stinging, scathing rebuke. Ah, but again, we must ask, what kind of rebuke from Jesus to Peter? Well, I thought you just said it was stinging and scathing. I did, but wait, there's more. Was it effective? Meaning, did Peter get it? Sadly, no. The usage here tells us that this rebuke was ineffectual, that this is the kind of rebuke where the one, is, where the one that is rebuked is not brought to see his sin. Had Peter been convicted of wrongdoing here? Had, had he been convicted of wrongdoing? Had he actually gotten it? The word would have been aleko, which means to rebuke so as to bring the person rebuked, if not always to a confession, yet at least to a conviction of his sin. That's what that means. That's not what we have here. Meaning Peter at this time did not realize the horrendous mistake he had made. If we can be so dense sometimes in our life to not take and be corrected by a rebuke by the Son of God, by his word. If we can be that dense sometimes. I know I speak for myself. How patient ought we to be with others? Knowing how many times we ourselves have missed it. Jesus' rebuke to Peter here is devastating. Any euphoric high that he had from Peter's proclamation in Caesarea Philippi is quickly dashed on the rocks. How does Jesus respond to Peter's completely missing the purposes of God and his hardness of heart? He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. Oh, this is one of the hardest passages to read in Scripture because it makes your head swim. What you are telling me is that I should not go to the cross. That makes you a surrogate of Satan. You want a kingdom without a cross, Peter. And so do all 11 of you. You don't understand. The kingdom you want right now is actually a Christless kingdom. I'm in it in your mind's eye, but I'm not the center of it. You are. There can be no kingdom without a cross because God has decreed that the only way to the kingdom he will establish is through the cross. And you tempt me not to go. You tempt me to take up what is rightfully mine as the son of God. We're right back to the wilderness. Satan went away from Jesus after tempting him, didn't he? Not forever. What does scripture say? Satan went away until an opportune time. Peter. Peter? Someone closest to you? Your right-hand man? Talk about a sneak attack. Be on your guard. Isn't it amazing that Peter would later go on to write, be sober-minded, be watchful, 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I know. I was his surrogate in the worst possible way, Peter says. I was a pawn to tempt Jesus to not go to the cross, to take up his kingdom now, a kingdom without a cross. The very temptation of Satan in the wilderness. Go around the cross and take up what is rightfully yours. That's precisely what Peter is saying in our text. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And Matthew even adds more of Jesus' response, telling Peter, you are a stumbling block to me. You would try to dissuade me. That's from the pits of hell. Your plan would leave the entire world in darkness. That's because it's not my glory you're seeking, Peter. It's your own. It's your own. James, John, you too. All of you. You're all playing God here. You've put your ideas and your priorities on the throne of your heart. And if that's where you are, if your ideas and your desires trump God's plans and God's desires, you're not of God, you're of the devil. One commentator writes, quote, when you put yourself in the place of God, you end up putting yourself in the place of Satan, close quote. We are occupying a role we have no right to. We're occupying a stolen throne with stolen glory. Our selfish desires always call for a crossless kingdom. No suffering, no pain, no hardship, just glory. But saints, there must be a cross. There must. You and I don't gather here today without a cross. The hope you breathed in as the Lord opened your eyes this morning to come and to worship him, that doesn't happen without the cross. Imagine anything or anyone dissuading Jesus from going to the cross. And Peter, of all people. But saints, let us see the redemptive goodness of God as we close. I want to remind us as we look at this stinging rebuke today, the harshest rebuke that was not even effective at showing Peter the error of his way at the time. Let us be reminded, saints, Where did Mark get his information to write his gospel? Who told him the stories? It's from Peter. It's from Peter. I won't fill in the blanks on that. I ask that the Holy Spirit apply that reminder in your heart. Whoever needs that this morning. Peter was rebuked and he didn't get it. But Jesus always brings it home. If he started a good work in you, he'll finish it. And toward the end of Peter's life with his execution drawing near for his testimony of the very cross that he tried to dissuade Jesus from going to. Peter would write, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter finally got it. He no longer wanted a kingdom without a cross. He wanted a crucified Messiah, a suffering servant. And now we look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you have given us a great gift in your word. Lord, we know that Jesus stopped and he turned around and he looked at his disciples and he rebuked them. Lord, there are many ways in our own hearts, in our own lives that we have taken our ideas, we have taken our priorities and we have set them on the throne of our heart, putting ourselves in a place that we have no right to put them. And Lord, we deserve that rebuke. Heavenly Father, we ask that as this message settles in our heart, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would take it and wield it, that it would bring us both great comfort and great correction this week. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would keep us until we meet again. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.